Does your life change once a month because of your period? Oh, what a disaster. Let me tell it to you straight. Unexplainable can change the way you feel about your period. For the next two weeks, Unexplainable is doing a series on the scientific treasures hidden in periods. You wouldn't think so, but it's wonderful. Fabulous. I call it just plain smart. Remember, there's a feeling with Unexplainable. It can actually change the way you feel about your period. This week on Unexplainable, The Bleeding Edge. Follow Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. This week on The Gray Area, Stephen Markley, author of the novel The Deluge, on why he was compelled to write an epic book about climate change. If 50 years from now we have used this period in history to turn the corner on the climate crisis, and you and I and everybody listening to this was a part of that, that is an incredible way to spend one's life. That's This Week on The Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts. Just a quick note, this series deals with sexual assault, so please keep that in mind when you decide when and where to listen. As in previous episodes, we've changed the names and voices of some of the people that we've interviewed to protect their identities. Also, at the very beginning of the episode, there are brief sounds of porn and violent war scenes. Imagine you're laying on a floor. Lights are flashing and projectors are playing movies on all the walls. The Mexican psychiatrist Salvador Roquette has given you LSD, maybe mescaline. You're tripping your face off. The projectors start playing porn and murder and war scenes from the Dirty Dozen. You put a blindfold on and then you get hit with ear-bustingly loud music. There's a classical piece from Debussy with a Japanese synth cover of the exact same song by Tomita layered over the top, just slightly off enough to feel fucked up. Then Balinese chanting starts, layered over the classical. Then Dad Rock, Quicksilver Messenger Service, and Pink Floyd and the Grateful Dead all at once. And then Ravi Shankar comes in, like auditory whipped cream on your nightmare Sunday. Then Roquette's assistants start walking around, banging on pots and pans for some god-awful reason, and holding live microphones up to you while you freak the fuck out. Hours later, you're still high as a kite, and one of the assistants comes up and says, Um, Cliff. We're going to give you a shot of ketamine. Would that be okay? This is Cover Story from New York Magazine, Season 1, Power Trip. I'm Io Tillett Wright. We're talking about the conductor of this chaos orchestra, one of the founding fathers of modern psychedelic therapy, and also one of Francoise Borzat's teachers. In the 70s, Salvador Roquette was called a master of bad trips. Those bad trips, horrifyingly, were by design to help people get past their deepest primal fears of death and sex and mommy. 
We called up a guy who worked closely with Roquette for a long time to understand what the fuck. His model came from the realization that just below the surface in most human beings is a roaring river of instinct and feeling and wild capacity and terror. This is Dr. Abraham Sussman. From his point of view, in giving up our access to this primal stew, many, many, many people in the modern world have given up their feeling, their heart, their sense of life, their sense of discovery, their sense of, 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 of amazing. And that the intention of therapy is to help people recover that sense of amazing. Roquette gave people high doses of psychedelics, blasted music and disturbing imagery at them, and observed as they completely began to crumble. He took lots of risks with everyone, which was his genius and his brilliance. Cliff Bernstein, the guy who got that surprise ketamine shot, says that it probably wasn't a great thing to offer him while he was super high, but overall, he still had a positive experience. My ego, gone. I literally did not know I had a name. I didn't know I had a history. I was flying above Highway 580, you know, in Oakland. And I could feel wind somehow. And I remember the headlights of cars down below. To help his clients come back to Earth, Roquette ended his sessions with something like group therapy, where everyone reintegrated and talked through what happened for them. At other points in his career, he was different. In 2002, Roquette's name came up in a lawsuit. A former student dissident named Federico Emery Ulloa accused Roquette of using some of the same techniques from his psychedelic sessions to torture detained activists in the 60s. Supposedly, Roquette was trying to treat them, make them better citizens. Although Sussman says he had another motive. I've talked with Salvador about that. He was in a bind. The authorities were going to shut him down. They were going to put him in jail. But Emery Uyoa has described the torture in detail. In interviews and testimonies, he said Roquette drugged him against his will, blasted him with pornographic films and Wagner at full volume, and then participated in an interrogation that left him, in his own words, in a state of terror. Emery Uyoa later called it, quote, psychological torture, and said it affected him for the rest of his life. Dr. Roquette himself ended up going to jail twice in the 70s, once in Mexico and again in the U.S., for giving people drugs during sessions. So he developed a drug-free version of his practice, where psychedelics were replaced with things like breathing techniques and fasting and sleep deprivation. Drama therapy and artwork and ritual and bioenergy. When we talked to Francoise Borzat, she said that she and her husband, Aharon Grossbard, He's the one who actually introduced her to Salvador. Actually ran these drug-free Roquette-style retreats for a good 10 years. And he called that convivencia. Like convivium, the name that Lily remembers floating around at the underground meeting of guides that she went to. They were a bunch of renegade healers passing down their methods, including their work with psychedelics, and adapting them along the way. It was Roquette, Francoise, her husband, Aharon, 
and another important mentor of theirs named Pablo Sanchez. Yeah, the mushroom and the LSD and then the ketamine and then the, the music for eight hours and all this preparatory work, the long integration after and the no sleeping, all that was kind of Salvador style. 20 plus years later, Lily and Dave got on the phone with Susan, this woman who'd been enrolled in Francoise and Aharon's underground training to become a psychedelic therapist. Yeah, and one of the things that I asked Susan about pretty early on was whether Salvador Roquette had come up in the trainings. And the reason I was asking her was because I had stumbled on his name in Francois' book, and then I'd gone on this like week-long obsessive bender trying to scoop up everything that I could find about this guy. Susan showed us the handwritten notes that she took at that training. There's a whole section on lineage, where Francoise and Aharon's ideas come from. And Salvador Roquette is central. Susan's fast cursive says, quote, father of our work. But when she talked to Lily, Susan told her that she was a little bit disturbed by the readings about Roquette. You know, it's starting to shake her confidence in the underground training. Why? Yeah, so uh, part of the issue is that before the training, the things that had upset her about her therapy with all she thought were just because it was all, And she thought maybe he's an outlier. But now she's starting to wonder whether some of these practices might be baked into the therapy and the history. The music and, like, the way they talk about primal instincts and directing the psychedelic sessions, like he's a movie director or something, rather than just letting people have their own experiences. So at the training, Francoise goes on to speak about Pablo Sanchez, whose teachings she's also held up as an important part of her lineage. And then one of the guys in the group yelled out, I heard that you had a relationship with Pablo Sanchez to Francoise. I've actually asked Francoise, and she told me that her mentors did not cross boundaries with her. But I can say that Dave and I have now talked to eight people who say that Francoise's mentor, Pablo Sanchez, was having some sexual contact with women he was treating in his psychedelic therapy sessions. Almost everyone we spoke to told us that Francoise was one of the women that Pablo Sanchez had had a sexual relationship with. I talked to one man who had been very close to Sanchez for about a decade, and he also confirmed witnessing the relationship. So Susan's second weekend of training comes up and Francoise's husband, Aharon, arrives and Susan says that she sees scratches on his face. So one of the men in the cohort, I was talking to him on the break and he was like, yeah, I did a journey with Aharon last night and um, I attacked him. So this gets at the idea that um, in this group, sometimes people are encouraged to fight with their therapists as though that's healing. He was like, I was already on this really high dose of mushrooms, and then he had me snort 5-MeO-DMT, and then I attacked him. But after that, I saw him as God. And then it was like, okay, break over. And I remember I was like, okay, that's weird. 
So it was around this time that Susan started hearing first and secondhand accounts of men who were struggling to figure out whether the kind of touching that had happened in their psychedelic sessions, including sometimes touching of genitals and anal areas, was okay with them. What did they tell people was going to happen in regards to touch? What did people what did people consent to? There's no reality in which a client could possibly consent to something like that. Okay, so I'm currently reading a webpage called Therapy Never Includes Sexual Behavior. It's from the California Department of Consumer Affairs, and it says, I quote, Sexual contact of any kind between a therapist and a client is unethical and illegal in the state of California. And this is even for two years after therapy ends. The site actually lists warning signs. They are unwanted physical contact, telling a client that they are special or that the therapist loves them, excessive out-of-session communication, inviting a client to a meal, dating, isolating a client from friends and family, and fostering dependency on the therapist, and so on and so on. The site also says, quote, it is always the responsibility of the therapist to ensure that sexual contact with a client, whether consensual or not, does not occur. So like Lily said, consent does not apply here. If you read Susan's notes from her training with Francoise and Aharon, they also, by the way, say no sexual touching is allowed. But in their training manual, they suggest students may seek further education in techniques like, quote, sexual healing work with substances, which may include, quote, sexual contact between client and guide. By the time Susan gets to her third training session, she's getting pretty freaked out. Aharon starts talking about what he calls borderline people, referring to borderline personality disorder. You're always going to get these borderline people that come to you and will, you know, claim you're not doing the right thing. Or, you know, if someone criticizes his work, it's probably it's because they're borderline. <laughs> and at another retreat, Susan says Aharon brings it up again. And he said, we've been sued multiple times. And then I was like, raised my hand and I was like, well, what do you do when you get sued? Here's what we know. There's one lawsuit from a former client that Francoise and Aharon settled. And another instance where they say they paid money to a former client who accused Aharon of inappropriate touch. In both cases, they denied any wrongdoing. After this one retreat, that involves taking MDMA. Susan's driving home and she has this run-in with an angry driver where they pull over and the guy comes up to her, uh, to her window and he's carrying a gun. And Susan says that she just weirdly isn't afraid. So it kind of got me reflecting on how much I wasn't having normal reactions to the things going on. And in the thick of the confrontation, she realizes like, she doesn't have a fear response to what's happening. Wait, 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 wait. This is not a hallucination. This is a real thing. Yeah. Jesus Christ. It just made me start to think about how my own perception was altered so much and my reactions to things was maybe dulled down. You don't want to just eliminate fear. 
fear serves a purpose for us as human beings. It's important to be afraid when there is danger. So Susan is finally like, okay, something is really wrong here. And she's been working with this new mentor for a while that's a woman and that she actually likes. And she goes to her and she tells her about all of the stories she's heard about people being touched in ways that bothered them. And then, evidently, her mentor goes to Francoise. She wrote back to me an email and it said, Hi, Susan. I spoke with Francoise. I did speak with Francoise this weekend and it seems that most of the information you were given was not correct, which can be a danger if it does not come from the people who are directly involved in the situation. And you should tell the person who told you to stop telling people them. So it's around this time that Susan decides to get the fuck out. And that's when she makes this call to this other podcaster and eventually she gets sent to us and we start doing video calls. I was basically like searching all podcasts for anything because I wanted to see like, is there something about the way psychedelics can be used for mind control and manipulation? It's one of the things I think about a lot that people take a certain refuge in the idea that they're immune. Yeah, people think like, oh, you're dumb or you fell for this thing or whatever. That wouldn't happen to me. Uh-huh. Um, I was realizing this this potential of like this openness that I'd read about in the scientific literature that psychedelics provide, you know, flip the wording on that and its suggestibility, right? I think the psychedelics put me in a really vulnerable state and a suggestible state and a porous state. You know, if you're using marketing tools on someone on psychedelics, it's going to work. Susan's experience before she met us was, I think, pretty isolated. Like, why? Why am I the only one that's so alarmed by this? But ever since Susan contacted us, uh, we've been digging. What have you found? Have you buckled your second seatbelt? We'll be right back. An influential poll from the New York Times and Siena College last month showed that 23% of registered Black voters said if the election was held today, they'd vote for Donald Trump. Now, this is a big deal. Black voters historically vote Democrat overwhelmingly. On Sunday, I sat down at South by Southwest with Charlemagne the God. Charlemagne commands one of the largest young black audiences in the country as co-host of The Breakfast Club. And he's become known for his blunt and provocative interviews of politicians and his critiques of Joe Biden and the Democrats. I'm the type of person, I, I feel like as, as a black person, I don't see how we're beholden to either one of these parties. I don't understand these black conservative crazies, and I don't understand these black liberal crazies either. I think as a black person, you shouldn't be beholden to any political party in this country because we haven't really seen, um, I mean, Democrats have done more, but we haven't really seen anybody systemically help us get out of the situation that we're in. Because I think that's something that people never truly address. Charlemagne the God on Today Explained. Every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Cover Story from New York Magazine. We're talking about Francoise Bourzat, 
the psychedelic guide who, when I first talked to her, made me feel like I wanted her to guide me. We have trained hundreds of people. And we're doing that in Jamaica. And we're training people in Canada. Actually, we have been training trainers here. So she's been a trainer of trainers. But Lily's now got a different picture. Yeah. So in the last 20 months, we've spoken to about a dozen people who say they felt harmed working with Francoise or Aharon or one of the people that they've trained. And we've talked to another half dozen people who say that they have witnessed harm or have been told about it directly from a person who was hurt. Oh, fuck. And I think one of the refrains that comes up a lot that I... I've been thinking about a lot is that this isn't bad apples. This is bad ideas, Um, bad ideas, dangerous ideas. Sorry, but it sounds like a bad tree. Or maybe a whole orchard. Mm. Yeah. Um, And of course, the problem is the same as it's always been in this world, which is that if you say something is dangerous, people are really quick to be like, shut the fuck up. We're trying to get these drugs legal. You're going to mess it all up. Um, And they make it out as if talking about real harm is more of a problem than the actual harm that's being done. Well, I want to just clarify something. I don't hear you saying that psychedelics are bad. Is that correct? Yeah, like, it's not the drugs, it's the people. Right. And I appreciate you bringing it up because, like, I don't want these drugs to be illegal. I think if you're going to market them as therapy to people who are suffering from PTSD or depression or conditions they haven't been able to kick, um, people who've experienced sexual abuse, sexual assault, rape, like, those people are the most vulnerable to the things that can go wrong and can be the most hurt by it. So that's part of why I think it's so important to talk about. Tell me your stories. Tell me your stories. Okay. So one of the first things that we found is a lawsuit that was filed against Francoise Naharon more than 20 years ago in 2000. So my friend put in a request for the court records, but we had to wait like a couple weeks because they had to pull the physical court records out of a warehouse somewhere. Mm. The man who sued them had gone to them for therapy We're not going to say his name in order to protect his privacy, but the case was settled and he signed an NDA. What did he say happened? So the first thing I want to say is that Francoise has denied the allegations that he makes. She has said that these are false claims and that they only settled the case to protect her work and their children. And I have spoken to Francoise about this, but we'll get to that later. The initial complaint is over 40 pages long and we're pretty disturbed by it. Wait, that's a really important factor to me because if they're saying that it's just patently made up, that's a lot of made up. Yeah. The lawsuit says that Francoise supplied him with various drugs that she said would open him up during their sessions. It says she told him that he needed to, quote, fall apart. So there's that idea of breaking people down or breaking down their resistance to heal them. Salvador Roquette rears his stroboscopic light head again. It was 1994 when he first came to Francoise for help. And by the next year, the suit says that Francoise began having uh, sexual contact with this man, and it lasted for almost five years. 
It says Francoise was kissing him and encouraging him to kiss her. She told him that their kissing was therapeutic. The lawsuit says she had harmful and offensive contact with his sexual organs, groin, and buttocks. And that she told him that their actions were necessary for his emotional health, healing, and growth. And that his, and this is a quote, passion needed awakening. What? She told him that her love would heal him. Um, yeah, I, it looks like you're having that moment where it's like you can talk to Francoise and then you get this other information and suddenly a bunch of things she says mean very different things. Yeah. And especially when it's presented through this lens of we are here for healing, we take care of each other, we heal each other. Okay. The case also outlines a really important point that comes to bear in a lot of these cases. The lawsuit says that he had begun to see Francoise as, quote, a trusted and all-loving mother figure. And that um, with the drugs and their practices, he was in a, quote, regressed childlike state. And that that made consent impossible. The lawsuit does a really good job of explaining how a therapist can abuse the kind of childlike trust that people might have for them. Are you familiar with the idea of transference? When you misplace something on someone else, right? Like transferring the feelings that you might have towards a parent onto the therapist. And I think like it's, it is a thing that happens and that professionals are taught to work with. It's like, well, if, if you're projecting your mother feelings on me, like, why don't we unpack what that's about? And that could even include if they're expressing sexual feelings, but it can go bad where the therapist exploits those feelings. Yeah, that seems pretty base. So this client alleges that Francoise gave him drugs to help him break down his inhibitions and amplify his sexual feelings. And instead of helping him understand those feelings, the lawsuit says that she attempted to fulfill his, quote, infantile fantasies and desires as well as her own. These kinds of experiences make it really hard to trust a future therapist. Like, how do you trust a therapist again after your therapist does these things to you? And... I think it's worth pointing out, too, that, like, all the while, as this lawsuit alleges, this man was getting worse, not better. And the lawsuit points out that Francoise isn't even a licensed psychotherapist, even though she presents herself as one. She's working. She's not? No. um, She is working under the supervision of her husband, which is why he is also part of the lawsuit. Mm. And all this time, they're both having him do various little side jobs for them. So he's gardening and he's babysitting their kids. Under the care of Francoise and Aharon, he gets more depressed than ever. He loses a lot of weight and develops asthma. He starts having anxiety and panic attacks and actually at a certain point becomes suicidal. Wow. We understand from someone who was close to the lawsuit that there were several years worth of diary entries related to the case. And at this point, I've spoken with two people who were clients of Francoise and Aharon's during this period, and they both say that they understood Francoise to be having relationships with clients at that time. 
Over the past year or so, this lawsuit started circulating in the sort of community of people that are connected to Francoise Naharon. And there was also another allegation circulating about a boundary crossing. So Francoise Naharon released a statement. Francoise's statement says that the lawsuit is a fabrication, but that there was another relationship that did happen with a client but that she did her work to stop doing that and repair the situation. I have her statement in front of me. It says, quote, The lawsuit was settled through mediation out of court, which was unfortunate because the allegations were not true. Aharon's statement actually talks about how he will hold clients and that sometimes, because of the altered states they're in, he thinks that they might misinterpret what he's doing. Aharon's statement says, quote, In my practice, I have at times held my clients when they are in distress with the intention of providing support. I am troubled by accounts I have heard which suggest impropriety that never occurred. He also wrote, quote, I've come to recognize that even with consent, the delicacy of these states can sometimes cause confusion, distorted perceptions, and distress, and result in an impact that was not intended. End quote. Yeah, Susan actually tells a story about Aharon where he talked directly about this idea. And she says it was the day after a group MDMA journey. And he was telling a story about a client who had been upset about physical contact during a session. He said, well, you know, I guess I gave him a bad hug one time and he took it the wrong way and so he's like must have been a bad hug it was just a bad hug he's like yes we had someone come once who told me he was suicidal so i had him come to our home and he stayed overnight and we worked in the yard and all this stuff he's like they tell me that's crossing boundaries but i'm not going to let him be by himself He was painting himself as like he had to cross people's boundaries to save them, right? That was just like Ayal said about himself. And you're using just audio. There's no video, yeah? That's right. Okay. Yeah, it's an audio podcast. So back probably in like August-ish of 2020, we started talking with this man named Will Hall, who had told us his own story about doing psychedelic therapy, this time with Aharon. Yeah, this is my broadcast couch. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) It was the late 90s. And he says that he experienced a lot of the same things that the man in the lawsuit did and that he gardened for Francoise and Aharon, mowed their lawn, hung out with them at their house, stuff that people in the therapy world would call dual relationships, which is traditionally not allowed because it just creates more dependence and blurs boundaries and Will says that Aharon also did a whole other series of inappropriate and upsetting things in his presence, like walking naked into the kitchen. And then eventually, during a therapy session, Will says that Aharon pulled him into a sort of groin-to-groin hug, which made Will really uncomfortable. Grossbard embraced me in that way in our session, and I complain that this is this feels sexual and he said no and we continued he was immediately dismissive and he would routinely say oh that's your crazy ego you're crazy will has written that he was in crisis after the therapy with aharon and asked for help paying off his student loans 
Aharon and Francoise wrote in a statement that they paid Will after he threatened to call the police to have Aharon arrested for working with psychedelics. They wrote that it felt like extortion. The thing that I really want to hone in on here is that when I first started asking around in Francoise and Aharon's community about how they help people who have experienced harm by a guide, somebody close to them told me that if the person I was talking about was WH, referring to Will Hall, that he had been bringing accusations for years and that he was mentally unstable. And that's the pattern. There's a pattern among these psychedelic therapists in general of calling people who accuse them of doing bad things crazy or borderline or psychotic or saying that they have abandonment issues or a vendetta against their former therapist. But you're a therapist. Literally, your job is to deal with people with mental health challenges. So you're going to turn around and call them crazy? It's very hard to stand up to your therapist because your therapist is the one who has the authority in that situation. They've seen your inner world. So they, in a conflict, can turn it around and say, oh, this is your, you're crazy. You're overreacting. You're mentally unstable. If you add drugs to the mix, you just increase the likelihood that the person is going to doubt themselves rather than push back. Just the fact that this person has expressed multiple times, I don't want to do something, I feel uncomfortable. And his response is, essentially, you don't know yourself, you're doing you wrong. (laughs) It takes so much to say I'm uncomfortable once, much less having to repeatedly say, no, really, though, actually, no. I'm really glad you said that. This is exactly what the issues are when you are positing a therapy that is based on pushing past people's resistance. Mm. Like it's built into the therapy that if somebody is telling you, this doesn't work for me, I don't want to do this, this is uncomfortable, that somehow it's considered to be therapeutic and part of the method to keep pushing past that. But I mean, okay, there I get it. Like I understand the the conceptual value of saying discomfort has to be pushed past. Sure. What I'm hearing from you is like a real-time grappling with like what the theory sounds like versus what the reality looks like. Mm-hmm. Cause as I think you'll hear in the other stories we'll get to, like the reality does seem to be like I, as the practitioner, know what's happening for you and what your needs are better than you do. And so if you tell me something doesn't feel good, then I have the authority to tell you that you're wrong or that that's a you problem and we're going to explore that together. And the way to explore it is for me to get you to push past your resistances. We keep going because I know what's best. Dave actually came up with a name for this I-know-what's-best approach. Psychedelic authoritarianism. 
Hey, it's what's hot this summer. Psychedelic authoritarianism. Coming to a practitioner near you. In our next episode. Hello, Francoise. Hi, Lily. Hi. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Cover Story is a production of New York Magazine. Power Trip is co-created, produced, and reported by David Nichols and Lily K. Ross. Hosted and produced by me, Io Tillett-Wright. Our senior producers are Marianne McCune and Whitney Jones. Also produced by Taka Zen and Liza Yeager. Our executive producer and editor is Hannah Rosen. Sound design and scoring by Mike Cruz, Brandon McFarland, and Sharif Youssef, who also engineered the show. Cover Story's theme music is by Santi Gold. More music by Lynx Demuth and John Ellis. Fact-checking by Bertina Cheng and Ted Hart. Crystal Finn is the voice of Susan. Special thanks to Legal Minds, Alyssa Cohen and Samantha Mason. Also to Gabby Grossman. Power Trip is also produced with Symposia, a nonprofit watchdog group. For a deeper dive into some of these issues, visit symposia.com slash powertrip, which is P-S-Y-M-P-O-S-I-A.